So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke, chapter 18, and that's about halfway through the book there. We're almost done. We've been going through the book of Luke, feels like forever now. We just said, hey, we're going to do this for a few years because we know Jesus is not coming back anytime soon, and so we're just going to keep, no, I'm just kidding. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. We're just going to keep preaching through the Bible, and we go systematically through the book of Luke, and even the hard passages, sometimes there's really tough, difficult passages. That's our commitment here at Southlands is we're saying, hey, we want to go through the Bible and the full width of Scripture, we want to understand it completely. Um, and so we have a lot of work to do this morning, um, and so we're just going to dive right in. Before we start reading our Scripture, last week we see Jesus tell us a parable and he's so on the nose with the parable. Often we see Jesus will, uh, will, he'll kind of tell parables and tell them as a riddle, and then we're trying to figure it out. And you see, even the disciples at times would be like, "I'm not sure what he's talking about." And then they'll get Jesus, you know, on the side and say, "Hey, Jesus, what did that mean?" Well, last week his parable, he just tells us up front, "Hey, this is so we are continuing to pray all the time, and this is so we don't lose heart in our praying because times are going to get tough." And this morning we're going to see it's not a parable. It's a narrative, it's history recorded for us 2,000 some years later to be able to look at a, a, a case here, if it were, to be able to look at a story, to be able to ask ourselves the question, well, how does this apply to me? How does, not, not, not like, not what does scripture say to me just specifically, but the objective word of God, how does it affect my life? And, and you and I get to like almost like eavesdrop in this morning on a conversation that we probably wouldn't have the privilege of, privilege of doing unless it was recorded. And so the intention here this morning is us to listen to it and then say, God, what is it you want to do in my life? What is it you want to do in my heart? What is it that you want to transform me if I'm calling myself a Christian, if I'm calling myself a disciple? What is it in me that you're wanting to help me take the next step toward maturity in Christ, okay? And I know that oftentimes we can just kind of do the due diligence of coming to church, gathered on a Sunday morning, go through the rhythm, and, and just kind of leave here unchanged, my encouragement to you this morning is to allow the Word of God to have its full effect in your life. I can't really say anything that's going to change your life. I have no power to do anything. I'm just trying to be faithful to explain what Scripture is telling us here this morning. See, the onus is on us to respond to the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit that wants to do something in our hearts. And before we get into the Scripture, uh, let me you wouldn't go to a doctor and say, hey, I need to be, this area of my life is unhealthy, and I'm going to go to a doctor, and then you would just sit in the waiting room, or, and then the doctor calls you and says, you got this, this, and this, this is what you need to do about it, and you're like, thank you so much, doc, for pointing those things out, and then you go and you leave, and you don't do anything about it. No, you would go to a doctor, and the doctor would maybe point things out and say, hey, your cholesterol's too high, you're, you're eating too many sugars, or whatever it is, I don't know, and he would say, this has got to change in your life if you want to be healthy. And for us this morning, we're not just trying to like be entertained, we're not just coming before the Word of God just to hear something and then go on our way. Our job as disciples of Jesus is to say, Jesus, tell me what it is that you see in my life that needs to be changed and transformed. And me as your disciple, I welcome it. Hurt me so good, God, right? 
And so can we do that this morning? And maybe you're not a disciple of Jesus. Maybe you're like sitting here and you're learning about what it means to be a Christian and you're, you're in examining the scriptures and you're, you're wanting to explore more about what Christianity is. My encouragement to you is this morning, and this word is for you because you're going to learn more about who Jesus is, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And maybe even this morning you might say, no, I want to take that initial step and I want to step out and, and, and say yes to Jesus. And we, we hope that's what God does in your life this morning. Amen? All right, so let's jump in. We got a lot of work to do this morning. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18, and we're going to read all the way to verse 27. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen. We also have Bibles around the auditorium here. Those are free for you to take if you don't have a Bible. That's our gift to you. This is the word of the Lord. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, verse 21. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, isn't that amazing, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 26. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. All right. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take this portion of scripture, and then we're going to like look at key aspects of it, and we're going to break it down, and then we're going to ask ourselves in every single key aspect, we're going to say, God, what is it that you want me to learn, and what is it that you're speaking to me, and how do I need to subject myself to your leading and your guiding? All right? We're all going to do that this morning together. So as we have eavesdropped, so to speak, in on this story this morning, I think the appropriate thing to do is ask, ask ourselves the question is, what does this rich ruler, how does he view God? How does he view himself? How does he view to the world around him? How does he view salvation? And then as we go through those things, we're going to ask ourselves the same thing, and we hopefully will come to an objective conclusion in these things. So first, let's, let's, let's dive in and just observe the first thing is how he views himself. Now, I don't know if you noticed it or picked up in the scripture here. As this guy comes to Jesus, he's asking him what do I need to do to be saved? And it's almost, remember when you were in school, if you can remember that long ago, when there was that one person who would ask the teacher a question who they already knew the answer? Remember those people? Nobody liked that person. If you were that person, shame on you, okay? But you know what I'm talking about. It's like the one person that goes, uh, excuse me, teacher, is two plus two, four... And everyone's like, oh, rolls their eyes. And the teacher's like, why, yes, Johnny, two plus two is four. Here's a sticker. Well done. And everyone's like, shut up, Johnny. 
And it's similar here to what the, this rich ruler is coming up to Jesus, very proud of himself, very arrogant in his righteous living that he thinks. He comes up to Jesus, and he, he says things that would, might be able to flatter Jesus, and he comes up and he says, excuse me, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? I, 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 you know, I, I've done pretty much everything in life. I've mastered all of the commandments. I, I'm hoping maybe, maybe you'll just say, you know, hey, you need to uh, walk a certain way whenever you walk, or make sure you walk old ladies across the street when the car's there. And then that will be the last thing that you need. And you see that he comes to Jesus in a very arrogant way, thinking that he's going to be commended somehow for his righteous living. He thinks he's going to come up to Jesus, and Jesus is going to know, because he's maybe probably been following Jesus a little bit here, and he's been hearing the teachings. He's like, yeah, I'm gelling with this. I feel that message. This guy's like, this guy's a, right, a good guy. And I know that because I've done mostly everything he's already talked about, I'm just going to come up to him and say, hey, there's one more thing that I need. What is it? And he'll probably just say something super easy. And he comes up with this arrogance. And I, I think sometimes, friends, if we have a particularly good moral week, or maybe even he had a really good moral month, that you feel really confident coming to God. I know I do sometimes. I know, and, and you've probably heard me say this many times, and I'll say it again because it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel doesn't afford us an audience with God because we're so good. It doesn't, it doesn't say, wow, you really had a good moral week, so you should be able to come to God boldly and ask him for anything you want because we'll look at your track record. And this rich ruler comes up and he thinks he's going to get commendation for his attitude. And I, and I think there's two things that fool us in this. I, th I would say number one is our culture. If we look to culture, you ever heard of the analogy of the, the frog being boiled in a pot? Well, if you don't know that, and I don't even know if this is true, so pastors use it all the time, so just give me a little, like, okay? Um, but I've heard that uh, because of a, the way a frog acclimates, it's a cold-blooded animal, that if you put it in a room temperature pot of water, and then you begin to slowly boil the water, it will just boil itself to death because its body will acclimate to the temperature. Now, if you throw it in hot water right away, it'll jump out, right? But I think that even as Christians, even for us who say, no, we want to follow Jesus with all of our heart, we don't often look at the culture around us and understand that it is contrary to the kingdom of God. And so because of that, we find ourselves going along with culture and think, man, we're pretty good human beings. We're pretty good human beings. I mean, I, the woke tick, man, I'm doing the woke stuff. You know, I'm all about that stuff. And, you know, the stuff I see on social media, like, uh, hey, man, I'm raising my hand for that stuff. I'm in the culture. And Jesus says, hey, that's not what's going to get you commendation. And then the other thing is, I think we compare ourselves. You know, we watch the news and we go, man, I'm definitely not as bad as that guy. I'm definitely not as bad as Ryan Kennedy. He's kicking his dog. I've seen him kick his dog. 
I've never kicked my dog. I've wanted to kick my dog all the time, but I resist the urge to kick my dog. Surely, God, that must put me up in heaven somewhere. Surely when I come to you, you're going to give me commendation. I know the urge that you had to kick your dog. You didn't kick your dog. Well done. Ask of me anything you want. And we fool ourselves over and over by allowing culture to set the pace or allowing comparison. Well, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not as bad as that person. And then we think somehow that we are good and we do what the rich ruler did and we come to God expecting God to be like, well done. Or somehow we might be on the other side of that and we know we're bad. We know we've messed up. And we come to God and we feel terrible. That's what religion does to us. It says, you have no right to ask of me anything. How dare you? Who do you think you are? He comes with a religious mindset and we are running out of time. What am I doing? Oh my gosh. Not only do we see his view and how it's contrary to what our view should be, so if you missed the point there, let me just come back to that and say, no, we don't come and say, Jesus, give us commendation because of how good we are. We come to Jesus and we say, it's because of your grace alone that we come boldly. But we also see his view of Jesus. Look at how it says this in verse 18 through 19. It says, good teacher. Everybody say, good teacher. That was, that was weak sauce, guys. Come on, we can do better. And at Southlands Chino, if we're going to do something, we do it, all right? Everybody say, good teacher. Good teacher. That, that was way better. All right, good teacher, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. So he comes up to Jesus, one, expecting commendation. He's probably heard some pretty cool stuff out of Jesus' mouth. He's seeing, like, he's liking this kind of message. I dig this kind of stuff. And he comes up and he thinks, I know what I will do to get on his good side. I'm going to call him good teacher. Now, most of the time, in the context here, if there was somebody like Jesus or somebody doing what Jesus would do, Somebody who was asking or addressing someone like Jesus would say, Rabbi, would be like, hey, teacher. Just they would have left out the good part. But this guy, man, he is like trying to butter Jesus up. He's saying, good teacher. And Jesus calls his bluff right away. What does he say? Why are you calling me good? No one's good but God. And he's saying, I'm going to make you Nail your colors to the wall. I'm going to see when I squeeze the toothpaste what comes out. Why are you calling me good? See, someone who calls me good should have this understanding that I am the essence, the objectivity, the definition of what good is. Don't come to me and tell me I'm good Unless you believe what? That I am God. Don't bring that up in here. Because I can smell it. Ooh, that was dramatic. And it stinks. And it smells like flattery. And it smells like you're using a cultured word to try to get on my good side when you have really no understanding of what you're actually saying. Why are you calling me good? Only God 
is good. See, Jesus is not denying his deity, which some very liberal theologians would say, oh, see, Jesus is not saying he's, he's God. Because, no, see, what Jesus is doing is trying to get this guy to understand, why are you calling me good? Only God is good. And so if you understood what you were saying, Jesus being God knows the next thing that's about to happen between you and me shouldn't happen. Because I am God. And, and Jesus is not the best of us. Jesus is not like the highest person out of all mankind. Jesus isn't the shining example of humanity. Jesus is God. Completely. Fully. The book of Colossians says what? He holds all things together. And we say yes and amen. Don't we do this though sometimes? If you've grown up in the church culturally for any amount of time, how do we address God? We say, Father. We say words like almighty. We say things like omnipotent. And, we, and then what happens when the omnipotent, almighty God comes and says, hey, I'm requiring this of you in your life, we go, holy cow, wait a minute, uh-uh-uh-uh. Not right now. That demands a little too much. Why are you calling me God? I hear when you pray, you're like saying, Father God. Am I, you know, I have two titles. I have title of dad. Well, I have three, husband. We're not going to get into that one. I'm not going to even go down that road because I'm not saying a husband is, you'll, never mind. I'm, I'm digging, my, you'll, you'll hear what I'm saying when I explain these two things. But uh, the first one is dad. And sometimes my kids will ask me stuff and then they don't like the answer. Hey, dad, title of authority, dad, can we? And I go, no, you need to do, and they go, ugh. And then what do I say? If you didn't like the answer, why'd you ask me? I say that all the time, don't I? What's the point? The other one is pastor. Some of y'all in this church, I'm a pastor. I'm not your pastor. Mike, Jeff, you're, these guys are a pastor in church. They're not your pastor. Let me explain that. We're just generic leaders in the church that if you like something that we're trying to encourage you in in the scripture, you'll take it. If you don't like it, you're like, uh-uh, you're not my pastor. And I'm not saying this to manipulate you, but God has placed me in this church to be your pastor. If you call this Southlands Chino, your home, I'm your pastor. Let me pastor you. The Bible says that. I'm not saying that because I want to lord over you. God knows I do not want to do that. But it's the same thing where Jesus is talking to this guy and he's like, hey, good teacher, why are you calling me good? Because only God is good. If you knew that I was good, if you knew that I was God, this next thing that's about to happen, you wouldn't be pushing back on me. You wouldn't be saying, uh, that sounds a little too tough, too hard. I'm not sure about that. Why do we call God good? Why do we call him Father? Why do we say, God, you hold all things together. You created the universe ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. You spoke a word, you said it, and boom, the stars created in a moment and then when we cry out to God and say God I want this and he gives us an answer we're like mm -mm. you can't have it both ways friends either Jesus is complete Lord and master of our lives or he's not now I get it we're not perfect at this 
So please don't say, well, I messed up one time. No, no, no. There's grace. There's forgiveness. That's what Christianity is, that we keep walking. We keep moving toward what God's calling us to, and we do fall often. And in that falling, we say, Lord, I need your help. Help me get back up. And he's so gracious to do it. But he has to be Lord and Master. How are you guys doing? All right. Number three, not only do we see his view of himself, Not only do we see his view of Jesus, but here we're going to see his view of what sin is. Look at verses 20 through 23. You know the commandments, Jesus tells him, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Where are my kids? How about that? You just repeat that. Honor your father and mother. If I could do a Jedi mind trick over you, I would do it right now. Look what he does in verse 21, and he says, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Everyone say, one thing you still lack. Good. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. But when Jesus heard these things, not Jesus, but when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. So here what we see is happening is Jesus is, is quoting some of the Ten Commandments. And it's interesting here that Jesus is quoting the commandments that have to do with externals. He's quoting the commandments that have to do with doing things. And I think Jesus in his wisdom, being fully God, is leading the the rich ruler here to a conclusion to let him understand something that he's lacking in his life. And he's doing this on purpose, I think, because you'll notice all of the things are externals, and he knows that he's kept them. So he comes thinking, I'm going to get commendation. Boom, I've already done it. It's like when I ask my kids, did you clean your room? Did it. Thank you. How about your homework? Is it finished? Yes, it is. How about, did you brush your teeth before you went to bed? Yes, I did. Well, did you do this? And then like, shoot. I didn't do that one. I thought I was going to have it all buttoned up. I was trying to be preemptive. I was trying to come with pride and arrogance to my dad and say, Dad, now I can play video games for as long as I want because I've already finished your to-do list, right? And he has this view of salvation That has to do with doing. I've done it. I've done it. It's almost like this guy's coming and he has like a trophy case. Some of you all are like collectors, right? Some of you collect little spoons. I don't know what they do, nothing, but you put them on your wall. Spoons like you went so-and-so. And and there's a spoon from Wyoming, you know. And here's a spoon from, I don't know, whatever. And what do you do with those spoons? You look at those spoons, well, why do you look at them? Because they're, I don't know, I'm making fun of people who collect spoons. We love you people who collect spoons. <laughs> Maybe you're like, you know, you collect figurines or, I don't know, something. And, and you, there's that one figurine, there's that one spoon. Marianne collects these Starbucks uh, mugs that are where, you are here series, right? And it's like anytime we go to another, somebody really likes Starbucks mugs, okay? Every time we go to another city, Marianne's like, okay, did we get the Starbucks mug from that city? I'm like, no, we didn't, you know? And she's like, well, we got to get it. And I'm like, yes, we do, you know? And if you come into our house, you'll see maybe like 30 different mugs from 30 different Starbucks states that we've been to. But there's that one Starbucks mug. There's that one pewter spoon. There's that one bobblehead 
angels night that you just didn't, Tim Salmon, is he still an angel? No, that's like, I'm old, okay. From a while ago, you still need it, and this guy's coming and he's saying, there's that one thing, I have a full trophy case, and I need it. And his view of sin is this kind of like, hey, I've done all these things, I've fulfilled all these commandments, it's all about the external. And this is what Jesus says particularly to this. Look at Matthew, we're going to get into a different gospel here. He's, he's addressing some really religious people who think they got it all together because they do all these good things. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is what? Angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 27, if you skip down, it says, you heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery within, uh, with her in his heart. See, we think sometimes sin is just about the externals that we've done. And Jesus is, same thing with the rich ruler here, same thing that he does with the Pharisees, and same thing that he wants to do with us 2,000 years later is say, it's not about how you look on the outside. It's about what's going on in your heart. Have you ever been angry at somebody and wanted to punch them in the face? Anybody? Okay. Only about a quarter of us are honest. All right. Rest of y'all liars, all right? Have you ever looked at something lustfully, whether you're a man and a woman or a woman and a man or whatever in between, you've looked at it lustfully or maybe just the thing that you want, you're lusting after this thing. I need that TV. See, Jesus says it's not about the actual I purchased for it. It's not about the act of just actually punch somebody in the face. It's what's going on on the inside here is what counts. And Jesus sees the heart. It's not about the externals. Those do count. It matters if you punch somebody in the face. Trust me. But sin is not just external. And Matthew 23, he continues. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. You really religious, you church leaders who know everything. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate. The outside also may be clean. And then he continues in verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs. We don't have enough time to read the whole thing. A whitewashed tomb, he said, you're dead. You're like dead man's bones on the inside. On the outside, you look so beautiful, and like the, the engraver came and made your epitaph all beautiful, and it looks nice to read, and when you walk through the cemetery, everyone's going to go, oh, I must have been a really good person, because look, and the family cares about it, they polish the marble, they keep the moss from growing on it, all of these things, but actuality, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead inside, and it doesn't matter about all the good things that you and I can do. It doesn't matter how many old ladies we walk across the street. It doesn't matter how many brownie points. It doesn't score us anything. Because God is looking at the inside 
of our hearts. All right. Let me, let me get to the essence of what Jesus is talking about here with these commandments. If you know anything about the Ten Commandments, you know that the first two, the first two commandments set the tone for the rest of them. The first one is, there's one God. There's one God. There's just one God. And the second one is, you should only worship him. There's only one God, and you should only worship him. There's only one God, and you should only worship him. And see, first Jesus talks about the kind of, so to speak, eight other commandments about doing. You shouldn't do this. And he's like, I've done it. And then he gets to the heart of the issue, and he says, but one thing you still lack, basically saying there's only one God and you should only worship him. And so what this young man, the other gospels explain, he doesn't have a, I haven't done enough problem. He has a problem of worshiping the wrong God. Maybe it's pornography for you. You know what? You don't have a naked person problem. You're worshiping the wrong God. You're worshiping sex, self-gratification in a moment. Maybe you're an overeater. Your problem isn't donuts, although that's, that's a big one. Your problem is that your God is your stomach. Your God is feeling fulfilled by food, not in Jesus. Maybe, I don't know, like, what, what, maybe you, you get angry all the time. Your problem isn't stupid people. Honestly, trust me, I, I like this is probably one for me. I'm like, stupid people are my problem. If there was no stupid people, I'd be so nice. <laughs> no, your problem isn't stupid people. Your problem is you worship the God of control and having things your way. And when, you know what, you want to know how you know you, you have a God other than Jesus? Is that when something gets taken away from you, how do you react? It's called an idol. An idol. We, there's probably nobody in this room, I mean, I could be wrong, who has in their house idol worship set up. I don't know. Maybe you do. They, there's other cultures. I get it. But most of us who, who, you know, in an American culture, we don't have idols that we light little things and pray to. What we do is we have these things called idols in our hearts. And it's anything that is a good thing that becomes a God thing. What's your idol? Your phone. Come on, brother. Tell the truth. A phone's a good thing. You can, in 20 seconds, know everything there is to know about everything in the world. That's pretty awesome. Your kids can be an idol. Your kids are good. Your kids are good. They're awesome. How are you going to act if your phone gets taken away? Especially this younger generation. We, you know, there's, I hear stories of teachers taking away that put your, put your phones in the basket before you come to class. The kids have a nervous breakdown. Why? Because the phone is an idol. If you want to know what's an idol in your heart, what are you going to freak out about if it gets taken away from you? What if Would God do that? Would God say, hey, this is an idol. I want you to set aside. 
And that's what he's doing with the rich ruler here. For most of us, I could tell you right now, look at your bank account, and that'll tell you where your idols are. Whatever you spend the most money on is your 401k. Your idol may be retirement. Is it that boat? We just went to Bass Pro Shop yesterday. That is, I like, I told Marianne, I said, if I was a billionaire, I'd probably be in here all the time. Just, I want that boat. I want that gun. Because I can, I, I buy it. I want that bow and arrow. I don't need that. I want those camels. I'm going to go out in the wilderness. I'm going to, I'm just, it's just like grows in my heart. I'd spend tons of money. Show me where you spend your money and I'll show you where your priorities are. For this young guy, it was that, right? And we think, oh, you're talking about money now, Kelly. I knew it. I knew we were going to talk about money. We're here we are. I'm visiting for the first time. First time ever at a church. We're talking about money. Why? Because money is, has a grip on our hearts. If you, if you think about it, we think people who are rich are just people who have a little bit more money than we do. Oh, the rich. The rich. That person got a bonus. He must be rich. That person makes $2 an hour more than me. They're rich. To, to this guy, we would have been rich. What's that? That's a toilet. What does it do? Well, you sit on it, and then you do your stuff. What's that little lever? You push it, and your stuff just goes away. What? Are you a king? What's that? That's a TV. What's the TV do? Well, it's kind of like a play, but you can push a button and it'll just change the play, whichever play you want to. What? What's that? That's a phone. What does it do? It calls a teenager. The teenager brings pizza to your house. Holy cow! You must be rich. our view of sin, I don't know where I got on this one, <laughs> idolatry, we give over these things, and then we somehow think, I haven't done X, Y, and Z, so I must be in right standing with God, and God goes, no, uh, uh, uh. sin's not about all the stuff that you're doing, it's about where the doing is coming from, and that's from your heart. Change this and it'll change this. We can't change this to change this. And that's what Jesus, he says, man, you, you still lack one thing. All right, we're almost done. You guys hanging in there? You guys are doing so good. All right. We also need to see his view of salvation was so messed up. And again, he thinks he can do all this stuff He's going to get saved. So Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God in verse 24. He went away sad. And isn't it kind of ironic? Because he asks Jesus, what do I need to do? I know I'm really good at doing. And what do I need to do? And Jesus is going to tell me the one thing I need to do. And then when Jesus tells him the one thing he's got to do, what does he do? <laughs> I don't want to do that. It's like meatloaf. You know it's going to happen. You know it's going to happen right now. I would do anything for love, but, but I won't do that, okay? He's like, man, Jesus, tell me. Tell me I'm all in. I'm all in. Woo, 
we're on this together. I want to be. I want to make much of you. I want to be part of this thing, man. I'm excited. This feels like stuff's rocking and rolling. Tell me, I just I'm doing so good. Just tell me that one thing. And he's like, sell everything you have. Sorry, what? Sell everything you have. And Jesus is not, this isn't like descriptive for us or prescriptive. He's not saying, okay, Christian, some pastors would teach us, you got to be poor to be a Christian. He's not saying that. He's, again, he's talking about the heart issue. He's saying that one thing for you is that you, this is your God. I'm not. This is your God, so give it away. And his view of salvation was, I can do, I can do, I can do, and then I'm going to add to my trophy case, and it doesn't work that way. The way, you want to know what salvation is? Complete and total surrender. That's what salvation is. You say, God, I'll do whatever you want. Whatever you want. You don't have to look a certain way to be saved. You don't have to talk a certain way to be saved. You don't have to be a certain age to be saved. You don't have to belong to a certain group of people in a church to be saved. You don't have to do anything to be saved, to experience salvation, except to totally and utterly utterly surrender to God. See, because with that surrender comes, you are my master, you are my Lord, you are my Savior. And whatever you say, God, I will do. Sexuality. But Lord, I struggle with this. That's okay. That's okay. We all struggle, but all I'm going to ask you to do is just trust me with your sexuality, whatever that is. But Lord, this is really hard. I know it's hard, but I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you the help that you need to change this in your life. Well, you have about, it's money. It's money, God. You, like, I have a really, I'm a, I'm a financial advisor, and I'm just all about it. And he's like, I, I get it. I get it. I understand. But I'm just asking you just to, like, just say, Lord, here it is. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's like, you know, this thing, it's that thing. I understand. We all have our things. All I'm asking you to do is just give it to me. And trust me that I, in my goodness, I'm going to give you everything you need to be satisfied, everything you need to live your life the way that I've called you to live your life. Just trust me. I, actually, I'm going to be a lot better than this stuff. These idols make terrible gods terrible gods if i love my wife and there are moments where my wife my kids my family become idols in my heart and i know that when i start getting angry about these things because i feel like it's not happening the way i want it the relationship with my wife the relationship with my kids it makes me angry because i am putting myself subject to them they are terrible gods they're horrible why because honestly they let me down Honestly, they don't fulfill every desire that I have. But when I surrender them and my relationship to, to God to them, God then steps in, my, in their place and he says, I am way more than enough than your family. And I will satisfy way more than enough than your family can. They make terrible gods. Last thing, we'll end with this. Well, let me just stop. Let me, let me, let me go back here a second because I forgot it's in my notes, okay, just being honest. I want us to understand that salvation, we're talking about this doing and receiving. I think 
in our culture and, and even in Southland Ticino, that we have this understanding of a three-quarters of the way God. I think that we somehow understand salvation, like God comes most of the way to us. So let's say this is salvation. God's over here and we're over there. God goes, all right, in my grace and in my mercy, I'm going to come three quarters of the way. And he stops right here. And then we're, right, we're about a quarter of the way. And we go, okay, it's my job to move right here. God did most of the work, but it's my job to come over here. See, that's not how salvation works, guys. Let's say this is salvation over there. God comes and he walks and he runs and he grabs us and he goes 100% of the way and he picks us up and he pulls us out of this junk that we're not, it's like uh, mud and clay, the Bible says, and he pulls us out of it because we don't have our own, we don't have enough strength actually to move over here. And he, what he does is he, in his grace and mercy, he rescues us as we're sinking. Somehow we might think, I got it all together. And he's like, you don't have it all together. I'm going to come. And he comes all the way and he pulls us up. <laughs> pulls us and he brings us back over here. And why I wanted to say that is because a lot of us have this understanding. God's done three quarters. I have to be faithful to do the rest. It's the only work that you will do in saving is just saying, God, I need to be rescued. I surrender. All right. That's a say. You'll see here Verses 25 through 27, salvation actually is impossible. Salvation's impossible. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look. Verse 25, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus wasn't trying to be um, mysterious here. He's actually being a little like um, sarcastic. He's saying, okay, it's actually impossible. Those who heard it then said, who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So here what we say, we have to take all of the learning that we've done this morning with this person's view of who he is, of who Jesus is, of what sin is, and what salvation is, and we put it into the objective understanding of who God is now, all right? And so now Jesus is saying, actually, Salvation is impossible if we do it the rich ruler's way. The rich ruler wanted to come in commendation. The rich ruler wanted to uh, think his sin was only external. The rich ruler wanted to think salvation was something you do. And Jesus is saying, actually, it's impossible. You, nobody, me, nobody here this morning can do anything to save yourself. You can't do squat nothing. And Jesus says, you trying to get saved on your own power is like a camel going through an eye of a needle. That's impossible. Yes, it is. See, here's the beautiful thing about our salvation, friends. While it's impossible, it became possible through somebody who has power to make it possible. You could be sitting here this morning going, There's, I mess up so many times, I feel like I'm going to lose my salvation. And Jesus would say, if you've accepted me as your Lord and Savior, 
It can't be taken from you because I paid the impossible price that you couldn't pay. I did it for you. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're not, you haven't crossed the line of faith. You may be saying, yeah, but you don't know, you don't know, you don't know. And Jesus say, yeah, it's impossible because of what you've done. But I'm going to go ahead and make it possible for you. I'm going to take the penalty. I'm going to pay the price that will make it possible for you. That's called salvation in Jesus. And while salvation is impossible in our own strength, salvation is afforded, is lavished, is won the lottery kind of stuff for us who put our hope and faith in Jesus because it's more than just us coming a quarter of the way. It's God coming 100% of the way, pulling us up, lifting us out, and saying, I paid the price. It was impossible for you, but I made it possible for you by what I did on the cross. Only, and, and so the, the disciples go, man, who could be saved? And Jesus says, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And our, our responsibility is to say, God, it feels impossible. God, I'm living an impossible life right now. God, I'm doing things that would cause me to be estranged from you. And Jesus said, I've paid the price for you. I've done the work for you. It is finished. That's good news. It's good news for you and me. It's good news for us who our hearts turn many times toward works, who think that we can earn our salvation, who think that I got to look, smell, talk, act a certain way. And Jesus says, get rid of that. Just trust me. Put your hope in me. I'm here to save you. Don't be a rich ruler this morning. You could be rich. Rich is fun. But don't put your hope in your riches. Amen? All right. Let's stand together.